If you would, please open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I know I've been saying that now for a long, long time. Open to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, but we are not finished, not hardly. I want us to continue to plumb the depths of not only what is there, but to look at other places in the Word of God to elucidate what the Lord would have us understand from this most important passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Very familiar, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know from this passage, if you have been with us, that I have said that there are really two outline points contained therein. One of those is the exhortative prescription, that is Romans 12.1. God has given us so many mercies, of course, as elucidated through 11 chapters now of this epistle of Paul to the Romans. These mercies of God presents a very, very wonderful opportunity for us, a command indeed to give our bodies, that is our whole lives, in three ways, as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. That's our exhortative prescription. That's how we're to live our lives. That's how we are to be obedient to Jesus Christ, by being that living and holy and acceptable sacrifice, using that metaphor of that which would consume an Old Testament worshiper as he took his sacrifice, the animal, and he would be placing that animal, as it were, on the altar, knowing that he himself deserved to die instead of that animal. But that animal was used as that substitute. And Paul borrows that language and says, you, if you see the mercies of God which have been evident to you as a believer based upon all of the rich theology of Romans 1-11, to then you too ought to present your bodies, your whole lives, placing them on that altar, as it were, as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your only logical worship, which is your only reasonable worship. And he says exhortatively, that is my prescription for you based upon the mercies of God. And then secondly, and the second outline point which has been consuming us for a number of weeks is really the ethical practicality. The exhortative prescription and now the, the ethical practicality which we see in verse 2 about how exactly to carry that out. He says, verse 2, don't be conformed to the world. That's the negative. That's the prohibition. But, he says, here's the positive. Here's the proactive. Here's our ethical, practical responsibility. Be transformed. This is how you're to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul tells us very, very clearly here, not hard to understand, that we have an ethical and practical responsibility to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice unto God, and we do it not by conforming ourselves to the image of this world, but we do it by the transformation of our minds through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And you remember I said to you last time that that renewing of the Holy Spirit occurs really in two ways. There's first an inward renewal that happens to us when we first come to Christ. In fact, the only way that we come to Christ is that Christ, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, causes us to be born anew, to be renewed, to have the heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh, a supple heart, 
be given to us so that we might be new, really for the first time in our lives, to be renewed to the original plan of our Creator, the way He created us, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And that renewal is also a continual renewal. It isn't something that just launches us in the Christian life, but it also is a continual renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I showed you several passages last time that show us this very truth that God gives us an inward initial renewal and then there is a continual inward renewal whereby our entire lives, our minds, our bodies, our wills, our consciences, our hearts, our spirits, our souls, all of that speaking of the one thing that is so tangibly true about the immaterial part of man, and that is the way we think, the way we process, the way we live, the way we make choices, the actions of our lives that are carried, of course, through in our bodies. And he says, I want those bodies to be living and holy and acceptable to God. You've placed them on the altar. You've said to God, I want this to waft up to your nostrils as a sweet aroma because I'm giving myself the whole of myself to you. I'm renewing, as it were, the commitment that I made to you by believing in Jesus Christ, by repenting of sin. And I want throughout the entirety of the rest of my life for that living and holy and acceptable sacrifice to be to you that sweet aroma. And I'm giving it to you, Lord. I'm giving it to you. And I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I know what that's like. I know what I've been delivered from. And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be characterized in that way. I want my life to be a life lived in such a way that you are pleased with my life. It doesn't look like what it looked like before. It's a different life. I'm in a new realm. I'm in a new existence. A new sphere of living. And I want you to have full control of my life. And I thank you for renewing me inwardly. And I thank you for your continual renewal of my life, transforming me by these things. And if that all weren't enough, he goes on to say that we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that for the purpose that By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we haven't talked about that yet, have we? We haven't talked about this second way for spiritual transformation to take place in the Christian life. And if I called the first kind of transformation this transforming renewal of our minds... If I've called that inward renewal, this we could call spiritual transformation by intense testing. Intense testing. That's what he's referring to here. Paul says, according to the first part of verse 2, we are transformed into being a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice by the inward renewing of our minds, and we are transformed according to the latter of verse 2, or with the result that, by intense testing, we discover, discern the will of God. We could say it like this. The way to be most diverted or prevented from obeying Paul's command to be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice is to be conformed to this world. That's how you can most be diverted from that path. Most prevented from being a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. Just be conformed to this world. It's really as simple as that. You want to be diverted from the path, prevented from doing what God wants you to do, just be conformed to this world. That'll do it. But the way to be most obedient to the commands of Scripture, especially this command to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice, is to be transformed by the process of renewing your Christian mind. And as I said last time, it is the difference between being schematized by the world 
and being metamorphosized by the Word. That's the difference. Really, all of the complexities and all of the difficulties and all of the challenges of this life come down to a simple, basic, yet I know from my life and from yours, hard to live out, hard to apply, hard to be consistent. That principle, don't be schematized by the world, be metamorphosized by the Word. It all comes down to that. Our being transformed by the renewing of our minds is absolutely paramount in the Christian life because when it occurs, it results in the intense testing by the Christian in order to discern or prove what is the will of God for your life. The negative, being conformed to the world. The positive, transformed by mind renewal, which results in an intense testing and proving what God's will is for your life, a good and acceptable and perfect will. An acceptable sacrifice of a life so that you may prove yourself to be in the acceptable will of God. You want to be an acceptable sacrifice? Find out what the acceptable will of God is. And then you'll be, by your obedience, acceptable to Him. This is what Paul is after now when he writes to these first century Roman Christians and as we apply it today as 21st century Christians. Now last week, We centered in on the inward renewal, as I said a moment ago, for you and for me as believers. We saw many different passages which speak of this renewal. And I want to move on now to this very important concept of the latter part of verse 2. And I want to spend all my time talking about it this morning because I think it's that important. And then over the next couple of weeks, probably as we end our Advent season, I want to do a couple of messages on this matter of, generally speaking, the Christian mind. Because that's so very important. I want this morning to focus in on that phrase in verse 2, by testing you may discern, specifically. And then, of course, we'll talk about the will of God. I want you to look in your Bibles at that phrase, by testing you may discern. That's the way it is in the English Standard Version. And it really, that phrase, the whole of that phrase, comes in verse 2 from one Greek word. Dokimadzein. And I've told you about that word before, haven't I? It's the Greek family of words that comes from that nominative idea or word called dokimas. And that's that word that is translated, of course, as testing or proving or examination, or scrutinizing. And it's the concept from the artisans of Paul's day where someone would put those precious metals into the refiner's fire and would increase the heat, the adversity against those metals, so that ultimately at a certain temperature, all of the dross, all of the impurities would fall away, would evaporate And that which is pure, that which remains, that which is precious, will come forth out of that artisan's work. And that's the word that Paul uses here, that one word, dokimadzein, to come up with in our English translations. And if you don't have the ESV, you probably have something very akin to this. By testing, you may discern. That's really... A translator's attempt, and I think it's a good one, to capture the essence of this very rich biblical concept. And Paul borrows out of the manufacturing culture of the day, and in this case the manufacturing of coins or some kind of uh, precious metal or good, using it metaphorically for the intense testing which is to occur in the Christian's life as he attempts to do God's will. Like an artisan who places that precious metal into the fiery furnace in order to burn away all of the impurities so that the genuine may be revealed. So the scrutinizing and the intensity of the testing and the examining of God's will 
would allow you as a Christian, as tough as it is and as difficult as it is, to come forth more easily seeing the good and the acceptable and the perfect plan of our Heavenly Father. Boy, what a great concept that is in the Christian life. That nothing good, nothing acceptable, and certainly nothing fully mature or perfect is going to come so easily to us. It's going to come by testing. It's going to come by examination. It's going to come by scrutiny. It's going to come by hard work. It's going to come by fire. It's going to come by heat. It's going to come by intensity. It's going to come by adversity. And that's what God does with us. What a great concept. The trials, the temptations, the testing of the Christian's life is used by God, whereby we are brought through intense, fiery, sifting, burning evaluations so that the transforming renewal of our mind actually takes place. That's radical. That's monumental. That's epic. Because it's going to take everything that we are, and it's going to take even the burning off of what we should not be to bring about our pursuit of the will of God. And I would submit by that that no longer should you wonder why God is taking you through what He does. He tells you right here. Here's the why. We, we may not always know the what. Lord, what are you doing? But we really, as Christians, because we've been given this revelation of the Word of God, it should tell us in our own minds as we read the Scripture, I don't have to ask the question why. I may be asking the what, what what's happening now, or what is it ultimately about in terms of this specific situation. But I don't have to wonder about the why. He says the why is that by this testing you may discern what is the will of God, this good and acceptable and perfect will. Here's the why. God is taking you through the adversity, through the fiery furnace of adversity. He's burning away from us, from you and from me, the dross of impure thinking. That's what's happening. Every time you and I are tempted by this world and its evil system, by Satan and his insidious devices, by our own remaining sin that, that lies within us, God is using the fiery furnace, the dakimas, placing, as it were, as the master artisan, your life and my life into that fiery furnace so that when the heat of adversity is turned to a fever pitch, all of the impure thinking of the world, its actions, its loves, its desires, its lusts, are burned away from us. So that we can honestly say, I don't have a desire for that. I don't have a love for that. I don't care about that. It doesn't move me. It doesn't interest me. Oh, of course, yes, there would be a level of temptation or a level of desire that is within us until the very day we die to do those things which are contrary to the expressed will of God. But in the main, in the balance... I am increasingly seeing my love for the world, my conformity to the world, lessening and lessening and becoming more infrequent because God is taking me through the furnace. He's allowing me to see His will as expressed through the heat of adversity so that ultimately I am seeing this conformity to the world burned away out of my life. And I would suspect, as you might also, that Paul would be using this kind of metaphor to show us that a lot of times that's going to hurt. Fire is not a good thing. Have you ever seen a fire rage through a house in a mere matter of minutes? When I lived in California, I saw some of these brush fires. And when those are combined with heavy Santa Ana winds, it's amazing how quickly something can be burned up. I've seen fire go from one road with the little spark and a little wind jumping a 
six-lane freeway to jump to the other side and start burning there. Boy, what, what a huge, huge metaphor for what happens if we have a little spark, little deception, little temptation, little testing coming our way, and we fall to it, and we answer it, and we, as it were, are that road in the middle, and we allow those things to just jump right over us, and in this case, right through us, and then it's burning the other side of us, and we can't stop it. This is, this is no doubt why he uses something like this. It's so perfect for him to use. And yet, he's saying, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, you're not consumed. You're not burned completely up. Yes, your hair is singed. And yes, your clothes are tattered. But God is working through His mercies. And it surely is the merciful deliverance of God for us as He speaks to us there in Romans 12.1 that we are even delivered in the first place. That we're redeemed in the first place. That, that there's even going on a testing through the fiery furnace of adversity so that in His judgment and by His decree, there's even anything good at all that remains after that which has been burned up. By the way, turn back to Romans chapter 1 and I'll show you something fascinating related to this particular word group, Dokimos. This will, this will tell you about the mercies of God, my friend. This will tell you about the mercies of God. Romans 1.28. After this recollection by Paul that God is giving them up, verse 24, giving them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among them. Verse 26, God giving them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28 it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up third time to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with all manner of unrighteousness as these are. And of course this is a description of the non-Christian. This is a description of the evil world system. This is a description of those who don't know Christ. And that very word, debased mind, is adakimas. With the little alpha privative on the front that negates the word. Tested and found unworthy. Proven and found insufficient. Adakimas, put in the fiery furnace, and when the adversity comes, what is burned away is everything. Because there's no purity there. There's no genuineness there. A debased mind characteristically doing what ought not to be done. In other words, an unbeliever has no capacity to test or prove or examine the will of God. In fact, they spurn the will of God. And because of utter sinfulness, they're tested and found unworthy of having a godly mind. And what they have, Paul says, is a debased mind. But Paul says, God, being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. It's almost as though the divine water extinguisher comes down and it gives us a refreshing renewal by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And our minds become cleaned up. And we're, we're, we're set on a path. And the path gives for us a renewed sense of our obligation to our Creator. And we're to do what is right. And it's because of the mercy of God that we have any capacity to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. And it's the mercies of God that we have any capacity to do that which speaks of our own transformation through our own study and facility with the Word of God. And it's only by the mercies of God that we are not conformed fully and characteristically to the image of this world. And it's by the mercy of God that we're doing any kind of scrutinizing or testing or proving of the will of God ourselves. 
Who gave you that mind to want to pursue the will of God? Who gave you the heart that wants for you to well up with praise to God like this morning? Who, who wants to be motivated to come and hear the praises of an orchestral anthem before God that says, I love Jesus Christ, that's why I'm here. I want to hear this music, as opposed to hearing the music of the world or doing the deeds of the world in its evil system. It's God. It's God who's doing that. And it's God who is giving you dokimadzain. It's God who is giving you the opportunity in this transformation process by the renewal of your mind so that you would, by this testing, this proving, this examination, discern what is the will of God, good and acceptable and perfect. Let me show you this in another passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God sounds a little bit like Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? But sexual immorality, here's this conformity to the world and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, not even just in darkness, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, therefore, for the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. Sounds like the will of God, doesn't it? Good, acceptable and perfect, good, right and true. And notice this, verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern is dakimadzantes, same word group. Try to discern. Try to do what you can to test, to prove, to examine with your whole heart through the instrumentality of the Word of God what is pleasing to the Lord. And I love this translation because you know what? It's hard to find out sometimes what is pleasing to the Lord. It's hard. Try. Try. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Look a couple of pages later at Philippians chapter 1. A couple of pages later, Philippians chapter 1, Paul's prayer, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, Paul says to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Sounds a little bit like that perfect will. Bringing it to its completion. It is right, he says, for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and then in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And here's his prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There's that discriminating idea again, the discernment of things which are good and evil, better and best, all of the above, so that, verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. The word approve, dakimadze. It's going to require testing. It's going to require not only yourself as a living sacrifice, but your decision making, your thoughts. To be placed into that fire and the impure thoughts, the decision making that is based on faulty reasoning, unbiblical thinking is going to be burned away. So, he says, that you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Holy and without offense for the day of Christ. 
Is that what you're endeavoring to do in your Christian life? Is that what you're endeavoring to do? Because I tell you, the process of mind renewal is difficult, and yet what it yields is marvelous. Marvelous. What it yields is a mind through the process of intense testing and discerning God's will, a good and acceptable and fully maturing lifestyle. Oh, that's, that's precious to want. That is precious to want. But someone, I'm sure, may ask at this point, well, even though I want to be pleasing to God, and, and even though I want to be pursuing His will for my life, I sometimes don't know what that will is. You, you, you keep talking about this intense testing and this discernment and this examination. And sometimes, even though I know what's in God's Word, at least I'm studying, I'm reading, I'm meditating, I'm trying to find out all of the obvious things in Scripture, but there are things that maybe aren't so obvious in the decision-making of my life that I don't know what the, the Lord's will is. I, I want to be that living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. And I want not to conform my life to the world. And I want to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. But I don't find in Scripture absolutely everything for my life in the myriads of decisions that I make in my life. I want to know the will of God. I want to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And yet I don't always do that. I don't always know. Help me. Well, I want to see if I can help you with that this morning because this phrase, the will of God, is listed here. And sometimes, believe it or not, the will of God, as it is understood in Scripture, is either not well taught or not well understood. And I want to talk about that. This is a great opportunity to camp out on Romans 12, 2 and to talk about the will of God. And let me see if I can help you with that. The Bible speaks of that which is the will of God in different senses, Okay. And I'm going to give you three of them this morning. And that will occupy the rest of our time this morning. I want to give you the first one, and of course that's easy, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, and that is this. There is one sense in which you and I can say that there is no way to alter the will of God. In one sense, that's true. In what sense is that? That's the sovereign will of God. That's the, the decretive will of God, sometimes so-called. That is, that God has a decree... He has a plan and a purpose. He has an inviolable, intractable decree that's not going to change by anything humans do. That's the sovereign will of God. It's unalterable. It cannot, it will not change. There's nothing that man can do to redirect this sense of the will of God. We've talked about that specifically from Romans 9, didn't we? And that was the sovereign will of God in the purposes of His electing grace. That's the decretive will of God. And that's, of course, the first and foremost sense of His will. Sometimes called even the secret will of God. Because while it's known perfectly to God Himself, of course, it's known only to Him in its fullness. And even we as humans sometimes see it very obliquely. Sometimes in very shadowy ways. And that's the first will of God as we see it in Scripture. I wish we had time to go through all of the passages that teach that, but I know that you affirm that. Secondly, there is also another sense to the will of God that is expressed biblical revelation from God, or as we might say, the commanded will of God. Or sometimes people say the perceptive will of God. That is that there are the preceptive will of God. That is that there are precepts, commands, injunctions to follow and to be obeyed or or prohibitions to be avoided. And those are things that, of course, constitute, yes, the will of God. In other words, He wills that we do certain things in the Christian life, and He wills that we also abstain from certain things in the Christian life in order for our Christian life to be enhanced. And certainly, I think this commanded will of God is included in what Paul says here in Romans 12.2. In fact, I think that's really the essence of of what he's talking about here. This is the commanded will of God. You want to find out what is good and acceptable and perfect? Find out in the Word of God what is good and follow that. Find out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Follow the acceptability. Avoid the non-acceptability. If you want to find out what is the perfect or the fully maturing will of God, 
then that's a matter of your sanctification. Find out in the Word of God what is commanded of you in your sanctification and follow that and then you will be fully complete, lacking in nothing. That's the sense in which I think it primarily has reference to here in Romans 12 too. But I also think that there is a possible third category, although I would myself put this as a subset under that second category. And I do that because I think it can be confused by doing it another way. But some people do it another way, and I guess I suppose that that's okay to some degree. And what they do is they say there is a third will of God, a third plan of God, a third aspect of the sense of the will of God, and that is God's providence. God's providence. And I think it could also be that Paul is referring to another sense of God's will here, which may have its own, as I said, separate and uh, category related, of course. Or, as I said, I would list it as a subset underneath the category of God's preceptive or commanded will, which I think is better, it's wiser, because I don't see the separation into such a separate category, even though we're talking about related matters. But I do acknowledge that there are things that God does in our lives as He directs us, as He leads us, in a way that there may not always be a chapter and a verse. And that's usually, I think, what Christians say when they say, I'm trying to discern the will of God. I'm trying to understand the the discerning nature of what God wants me to do, how He wants me to respond and I think that this, too, might be included here in Paul's thinking in Romans 12, too. Why? Well, I believe that the way to determine the providence of God is to do exactly what you do under that second category, and that is to study Scripture. But here, we might widen it out a little bit and say, yeah, but if there's not a chapter and a verse here, then how would you study Scripture if it doesn't give you the concepts of your own particular subjective situation? And that's where I would include not just commands, not just prohibitions, not just this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you're supposed to avoid, but I think the collective wisdom of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, including, for instance, illustrations from Scripture about how humans have acted in their lives as recorded in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone did something wrong in Scripture, you have an illustration to do something wrong in your life. We're not talking about that. What we're really talking about is that when you widen the lens of Scripture, you have instances, situations, scenarios revealed to you and to me whereby that might help us implicitly with maybe a principle of the Christian life that could be very helpful to us. And I think that one of the best ways to illustrate when you teach is to illustrate from the Scripture itself. You can always get into trouble by using illustrations, just like I did last week. The idea is, if you use an illustration where you can buttress it with Scripture or it's an illustration from Scripture, you're doing two things at the same time. One, you're illustrating, which is always helpful to people. And secondly, by the illustration, you're also teaching at the same time. You're teaching the Scripture. For instance, we talked in one other message in this series about the idea of David's adultery with Bathsheba. That's an illustration from Scripture, and that's a powerful one in many ways, so that we could say, avoid that kind of practice. You say, well, there are commands which tell us explicitly to do that. Yes, well, but there are also illustrations that may or may not be what you and I automatically do, but they could very well be helpful to us when we're trying to make decisions about our lives. And so I add this particular category or subcategory because I think it's important. You say, well, in what sense is it important? especially when you talk about Romans 12 too. Well, I think it's important for this sense. There are a lot of people out there, and I've done it, and you've done it. In fact, we do myriads of those kinds of things every day, and that is, how should I live? In this sense, who should I marry? For whom should I marry? Or should I marry in the first place? What car do I drive? Where do I go to work? Who do I work for? Where do I live? Do I live in Arkansas? Do I live somewhere else? And you can just multiply those 
ad infinitum to, to the place where you are asking the question, I think, honestly speaking, what is the will of God? What is the direction of God? What is the plan of God? If you don't like the word will when you're talking about providence, that's okay. I think Scripture actually uses it, but that's okay. If you just say, what's the plan of God? What's the purpose of God? What's the direction of God? Where should I go? What should I do? And if you don't find anything that specifically relates in the subjective element of your own personal life, which may or may not apply to someone else, then we need help. We need help. What do I do? Well, take courage, believer friend. God's collective wisdom, the entirety of biblical revelation, although, listen to my qualifier, I'm not advocating, as some do, some tantamount thinking that says they rely on Scripture, plus sometimes very unreliable subjective impressions and intuitions. I'm not talking about that. I'm not suggesting that you sit in your lounge chair and you just wait for some kind of subjective intuition to come to you from God that allows you to know what is the will of God for your life. Whom you should marry. Is it Sally or Jane? The Lord's not going to give you that in my judgment. Well, will He nudge me a little bit? I mean, will something happen to the chair or me or both? What will happen? Where does it happen? And with what tools do I use? Same answer as number two with the commands of Scripture, the preceptive will of God. Same idea. Read the Scripture. Follow the Scripture. Study the Scripture. Meditate on Scripture. Seek wise counsel. Remember, I gave you that illustration last week of my experience. I should have sought wise counsel. I should have grouped all the elders with me and said, here's my dilemma. I need your collective wisdom. And then we'd all be studying the Scripture. We'd all be reading. We'd all be discussing. We'd all be discerning. That, I think, is what is bound up here in Romans 12, too discerning, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5.10. And yet, we don't all just sit around and wait for subjective impressions, intuitions. No. What I am saying is that we have at our disposal all of the corpus of the revealed accounts of people and issues and situations and scenarios in Scripture which I could use to seek to know and understand how to apply that wisdom personally in my own life decisions. And those are important. Whatever that providential movement is in the plan of God for my life and what it may seem to be, I'm going to do my best to test. That's our word, dokimas. I'm going to test, discern, examine whatever I can surmise from what appears to be the providential purposes of God for me so that I can rejoice in His goodness. And I have been, myself, very much helped by this good book called Decisions, Decisions, How and How Not to Make Them by Dave Swavely, a former colleague of mine at Grace Church. Listen to what he says, very practical. He says, About ten years ago, I decided to marry my wife, Jill. That was a big decision, though not a difficult one, because I never would have married her if I had not developed a relationship with her. I never would have developed a relationship with her if I had not seen her love for Christ. Now, see, that's a principle, right? Because you don't marry unbelievers. He says, I developed that relationship with her while praying with her. He said, I never would have prayed with her if I hadn't decided to meet weekly for prayer with the senior class officers at a Christian high school. I never would have decided to do that if I'd not attended their senior class retreat at the beginning of the school year and seen the great need for revival in the school. He goes on to say, I never would have attended the retreat if I'd not been asked to go by the school's administrator. I never would have been asked to go if if I'd not gone out to lunch one day with that administrator and discussed my possible involvement with the school. And he says, of course, I never would have gone to lunch with him if I'd not decided to spend my lunch hour that way on that particular day. You see how all of those myriads of decisions move you along in the providence of God, the providential path of God? And so he summarizes, so one decision to eat lunch with that man eventually led to marriage with my life partner. And the fact is, every decision you make has that kind of potential ramifications. In that sense, there is no such thing as a small decision. He's right. All of our choices are threads in the fabric of our future. That is why you need to learn how to make good decisions. In fact, you need to learn it so well, I love this, that you will be able to make the best choice immediately and instinctively 
because you often will have little time for extended deliberation. We have to make decisions all the time. You have to make decisions about your kids. You have to make the decisions about yourself. You have to make the decisions about job, about car, about family, about finances. And sometimes those decisions come at us so quickly. Our head is spinning. We don't know exactly what to do. There doesn't appear to be anything wrong with this decision. Doesn't appear to be anything wrong with going in this direction. But we're still in a quandary because we ask ourselves, is this the right way? Is this the way we should go? I don't know. I want to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice, but I don't know. And I may not have a chapter and a verse about these decisions, but I want to search and I want to glean all I can from the truths of God's word. And yet sometimes even in the collective wisdom of all of the books of the Bible, I'm not going to find precisely and exactly everything that I'm going to need to know when I'm faced with a particular subjective decision of my own. And so what do you do? And that's where I would sort of jump off the bandwagon of this discussion about the will of God and simply talk about providence. You say, well, how do you read that? It's not easy sometimes. Well, how do you do it? You pray. And this is where prayer weaves its way into the will of God, the plan of God, the providence of God in such a way That you don't know anything conscious against yourself. You believe your motives are as pure as you can think them to be. Knowing that no motive is exclusively or completely pure. But you want to make a good decision. You want to be a good, solid, living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. And you're wanting to do what God wants you to do. And you're wanting to honor Him. And it's at this point that someone might come along and say, Yeah, but what what about 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4? Because it says everything that pertains to life and godliness is through the magnificent and precious promises that we have through the knowledge of God's Word. That says we have everything we need. Yes, it does say that. And it does indicate that. But this passage and others like it aren't implying that we can search through these precious promises in order to find a particular verse in which to subjectively apply everything we're going to face in the Christian life. And that's sometimes what people do. They get a chapter, they get a verse, they get a phrase, they might even get a word. I had a woman say to me one time, I know that it is God's will for me to sell jewelry with a particular company. And I said, you you know that's the will of God? She said, yes, absolutely. And I said, how was it that you obtained the will of God in this? Because... That would be hard for me to determine in Scripture that you were supposed to sell jewelry from this particular company on these particular days in this particular context. And she said it was a verse of Scripture that I read in my quiet time. It was out of the book of Isaiah. And it said, go and sell jewelry. And she said, I just knew that that was the will of the Lord. So I said, well, let's look up that verse together. And so we looked up that verse together. And I said, here's one big problem. It says, do it in Tarshish. I'll be praying for you as you pack and as you move there. And See how difficult this is? You have to watch out. You can't just sort of yank something out of its context. You can't say, this is the will of God for my life. I know the providence of God is leading me to do this. And do you know, there are a whole lot of things that have been blamed on the Holy Spirit's leading, right? A whole lot of things have been blamed on the Holy Spirit. The Lord told me, the Holy Spirit showed me, this is the will of God, and often embarrassingly, sheepishly, people have to come back when it didn't go well. It obviously wasn't the will of the Lord. It obviously wasn't His providence. And they have to say, I was wrong about that. But I don't always hear, I should not have said the Holy Spirit told me to do that. We have to be very, very careful. Now let me, as I close, give you this. This has been helpful to me. If you're trying to determine the sweet, providential hand of God firmly, gently, carefully guiding you. I'm going to use the analogy of a car. And I'm going to use the analogy of a car driving down the road. And of course, we have in our car the essence of all of the buttons and the gadgets and the gas and everything that would be relatively akin to Scripture. We have all that we need. Yes, that's true. But it may not be for us such clear direction that we know which direction to go at all times and at all points. Because sometimes you can reach a certain destination by going different routes. 
And that is so true in my own life. I'll be driving down the road and I'll want to go in this direction. And my wife says, why are you going there? Why don't you go this direction? And I say, well, you know, there are two different routes to go there. And I like this one. And we're going to go this one because even if we get lost, that just means it's an alternative direction. See? Which happens most of the time. But anyway, the specific directions from God's Word, that's... That's the will of God that's the commands, the prohibitions, the stay away froms. And you know what? The will of God is like a road map. And there are clear signs on the road map, clear markers that say something like this. Danger. Don't go there. Veer left now. That's the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4. It is the will of God, your sexual sanctification. That's like one of those major markers. That's a sign, a signpost that says, don't go there. Danger ahead. Flying off the cliff at breakneck speed. That's that sign. And if you violate that, and if you're driving the car of the Christian life, you're going to go over. And God loves you, and He doesn't want you to do that. He knows you're going to be hurt. He knows you're going to crash and burn. And that's not good. And he also has in some of these commands, these injunctions, if you go this way, like most of the time that my wife is directing me, you go this way and it'll be good for you. It'll be good for us. This is blessing. This is joy. And we ought to go that route. But you know, even with all of the markers and even with all of the signposts, even with all of that, did you know that in the car of the Christian life, signposts and markers and even GPS systems may not always take us there like we'd want to be taken there. Maybe it's not going to take us so precisely to the direction that we need to go with all our faculties and with everything about us and we'll get there every single time in perfection. It's not going to happen. By the way, have you ever tried sometimes that GPS system? A lot of times it's right on. Sometimes it isn't. You can't rely on those things. And it may even be like, at times, the GPS is like those subjective impressions. I know this is the way. I know this is right. This is the will of God. Instead, you ought to be like James 4. If the Lord wills, and I think this is talking about providence, if the Lord wills, we will go here and do this or that. The Lord wills. If the GPS is right, if it's going to take us to its intended destination, yes, but be careful. And I'll tell you how you ought to be careful. Look at Hebrews as we close. Hebrews chapter 5. Although I just said we closed a moment ago, didn't I? Hebrews chapter 5. I meant close with the last point I was making. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Here's the process. Here's what we do. Even though this, I admit, is in the context of a warning against apostasy and it's talking about someone who comes up to the line of Christianity and continues to to have only milk and not solid food, it nevertheless is instructive even for us as Christians because it says, Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature. That's a believer. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My friend's going to take a lot of practice to drive that car. My son Logan Quinn is 16 years old today. Pray for me. Pray for me. He said to me this week, Dad, when can I drive on my own? And I said, the millennial kingdom, son. The millennial kingdom. He's good, but he's not yet trained to discern all of the potholes out there. All of the signs and all of the markers. And when we had that training, supposedly from ages 14 to 16 here in the state of Arkansas, and you're in that passenger seat, and you're that responsible adult, and they do something in which you say, if I were not here, that would not have been good. Because I would say something like, son, did you not see that sign? No, what sign? That's not good. That is not good. Son, did you see that light? What light? No, son. Son, there are other cars coming in our path. 
Son, pray with me now, son. Pray with me now. Keep your eyes open, son. We have to, with our lives, my beloved friends, seek to discern by constant practice the distinguishing of good from evil. And if you, in that analogy of that car, are driving down the road and you've got a whole bunch of signs that are good, solid commands, prohibitions, injunctions from the Lord, and markers that say, go this way, veer this way, don't go this way, danger ahead, you've got potholes in the road, you have all of these challenges, you still, in and of itself, with a myriad of other decisions, just like what time am I going to wear, or any greater far more incredibly important decisions than something like that still don't have chapter and verse. And when you're in that car, you need a tremendous amount of wisdom. And you gain that, my friends, by devouring this book and devouring Christian relationships and reading everything you can and praying like mad so that you would be able, through constant practice, to distinguish between good and evil, better and best. To be able in your heart and mind to say, I want to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And I want to be conformed to the world. And I want with all my heart to discern, test, prove, examine the will of God, that good and acceptable and perfect will. And when it's not so given to me in chapter and verse, I want to pray like mad because that's when I know I could be at my worst. Because I don't have a sovereign decree to rely on. I don't have a command to obey, I only have my own sanctified heart and I need prayer, I need help, I need counsel, I need people, I need prayer, I need to do everything I can to constantly practice the discernment between good and evil, better and best. And you know what, we'll talk more about that when we talk about the Christian mind because I'm convinced that we live in a culture today, as I used those illustrations last week, we are in a culture today, my friends, in which the Christian mind is almost extinct. And that's not to go on one side of the extreme or the other. It's not a holy huddle where the only thing we do is we gather together with ourselves. We've got to win that world out there. That's our command too. And it's not the extreme on the other side. Let's see how close I can get to the world without falling in. But somewhere in that balance, and that's a hard balance to make, somewhere in there is our opportunity to distinguish, test, try, discern, examine, prove what the will of God is. And we ought to be saying as a collective body, Lord, give us this will. Give us this will. Allow us in your providence to maintain a life that is pleasing to you, even if we don't have chapter and verse. We'll talk more about chapter and verse next time. That is the mind that God has given us. Let's pray together. Father, as we do attempt to take every chapter and every verse and develop a Christian mind, may You give us success in our labors. Lord, I pray that those to whom this Word reaches will be encouraged and that they will be discerning and that I myself will be encouraged and discerning to test and prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But Lord, I know that if I do that, I must have first and foremost a Christian mind. And I pray for those here today who don't know anything about what it means to have a Christian mind. They have one of those debased minds that Romans 1 has spoken of. And I pray that you would lift the veil, Lord. Grant them spiritual sight. Allow them to repent of their sins and place their faith solely in Christ. Open their eyes, Lord. Bring them to the prayer room or have them speak to a friend or even today, Lord, as the Advent season brings us to two Christmas concerts and with friends and relatives and neighbors and others. May their minds be opened even today, even through the ministry of Christ exalting music. And Lord, for us, for believers. 
for those who need not only chapter and verse, but to be so immersed in it that our minds are thinking instinctively with Solomonic wisdom how to approach the Christian life, how to approach the world. May you give us your favor. And may we as a body come to a place of success in our labors for your honor, for your glory and for the good of your kingdom and the extension of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.